This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. With the massive job losses this year because of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, the federal and many state governments have passed protections against eviction, both to help people who just need to keep their heads above water until the virus is beaten, or because it just isn't good to have more people living on the street during a pandemic, both for their health and everyone else's. But are these protections actually protecting anyone? Judd Legum is the investigative reporter and lawyer behind the newsletter Popular Information. Judd, good to have you with us. How are you? Thanks for having me. Let's start with this. The various federal and state protections against evictions, who do they cover? Are they just for people in government-backed housing? What are they? Well, on the state level, it's going to vary a lot, state to state. On the federal level, the newest development is an announcement September 1st by the CDC saying that there was going to be an eviction moratorium across the country. Um, this would apply not to everyone, but to most people, anyone who makes $99,000 or less, which covers most renters, um, or about double that uh, if you file uh, jointly as a couple. Uh, but there is a big loophole to this, which is you're only covered as a tenant if you fill out a form saying that you meet the income threshold, saying that your inability to pay rent uh, is due to the pandemic and making a couple of other declarations. And so if you don't fill out that form, you aren't covered. And how do people find out about this form? I mean, I take it this is not something that's mailed out to every renter in the United States. So how easy it is, is it for most Americans to even find out about this? It's not that easy. Uh, If you're someone like myself who spends a lot of time uh, following the news, because that is my job, uh, I can find out about it. For people who have jobs or people looking for jobs or people who are dealing with childcare and other issues during the pandemic, um, they may not find out about it. There's no obligation for, for the landlord themselves to tell the renters that this is available. And it's a problem when the tenants go, go into court because landlords do continue to file these cases. Um, some of the judges don't feel comfortable telling the tenants that this form is even available because they feel like that is providing them with legal advice, which is what ju- judges are not supposed to do that. And the other issue is, which is a really big problem, that most tenants, 90% of tenants, come to court without an attorney. So, yes, I think this it is a problem as far as just people knowing about the form. Judd, in terms of this form that people have to fill out, where do they find it? 
Well, if you just Google CDC eviction form, put that into Google, the declaration form uh, will be the top result. And you'd want to print that out, fill it out and, and give it to your landlord. And there's more problems here because this is not something where landlords are told, okay, you can't evict people for now and then we'll see where we go as the virus either surges or the virus goes away, whatever happens here in the future. The tenant actually has to assert their right not to be evicted, which means if they don't take action, this is all meaningless. Yeah, that that's right. And, and the other thing is even the tenants who managed to, to jump through all of these hoops – even if you do find out about the form, you fill it out, you assert your right, um, you, you manage to stave off eviction for right now, that's good. But what the policy doesn't have is any kind of rent abatement or any um, rent cancellation. So what's happening is month after month, if you are able to get protected, you're, you're piling up debt. And then when this policy expires, and it does expire at the end of the year, all of that will come due. So what this policy is setting up to the extent that it does work. And there's some landlords is clear who are sort of voluntarily just doing this, just putting a pause on evictions. But when it expires, we're going to have a really big eviction bubble and we potentially could have millions of people being evicted pretty much all at once towards the beginning of 2021. Is there anything here that says, okay, if you've taken advantage of this program, you've jumped through all the hoops, you've gotten this done, that you can pay the back rent you owed over a longer period of time? Or is this going to be for many people like a balloon payment? Hey, you didn't have to pay rent during this time. You're out of work because of the virus, but now you've got to come up with you know 10 months worth of back rent all at once. Yeah, there's nothing that would require a landlord to allow the the back rent to be paid over time. It would all become due at the beginning of the year. Now, some landlords might realize that, hey, it's expensive to evict someone. You might not find somebody to move in right away, so you want to work with people. Um, you know, that some landlords, I bet, will do that, but others are going to demand um, their full full rent, especially if they were looking to evict these tenants anyway. There's a long-term problem here for people who get evicted because the record of that eviction may hurt them in terms of housing, credit, and so many other things in the future. Yeah, getting evicted, it's all public record. Uh, That's how I was able to do my reporting, is you can look up um, any eviction proceeding and see what happens. So the people who do get evicted, uh, really through no fault of their own as a result of this pandemic, the next time they apply for an apartment, uh, the the apartment management company is going to see they were evicted from their last apartment. The next time they apply for a job, Uh, they may see that they have a history of eviction and that may be um, seen as a strike uh, against them. So it it does create uh, potential long-term problems for the people who are impacted that beyond just losing their home. So what kind of numbers are we talking about? How many households are unable to pay their rent because of the pandemic right now and are at risk of eviction? Well, a lot of this is an estimate, but the people who look at it think there are about 17 million households who are at risk of not paying their rent and therefore at risk of eviction. Um, and so some of those people may find themselves being being brought uh, into court immediately. We see eviction cases, hundreds of eviction cases being filed every day, if not thousands. Um, and then others are going to are going to face those problems in, in the new year. But it's a it's a big problem. And it's it should be something that's of concern to people, whether or not they're renters, because 
you, you pointed this out earlier. You also have the landlord side of this too. So this could be a cycle. You know, if these people are evicted or if these people aren't paying rent, you also are impacting the landlords and you are creating more economic chaos in an economy that's already dealing with a lot of chaos. And should be pointed out, the people who are in trouble here are, for the most part, some of the most vulnerable people. Most higher-paying jobs, or at least many higher-paying jobs, are the kind of jobs that you can do from home. They're the people who are on their laptop or in, you know, Zoom or Google Meet or whatever. It's the jobs of clerks in chain stores, waiters, cooks, others at restaurants. These are the people who are being slammed hardest by the job losses. Yeah, uh, and you have people who are in those jobs. Those are typically people who are renting uh, as well, and they've lost their job through no fault of their own because of the pandemic, because restaurants are closed, they're operating at below capacity, um, all sorts of, of reasons, events, venues, et cetera. And now they're unable to pay their rent because they're out of a job, and those are the people who are impacted impacted the most. It's, it's a little bit short-sighted, too, because we put in trillions of dollars into trying to keep the economy afloat, many trillions of dollars through the Fed supporting big business. But this is a big problem, but relative to the amount of money we've already spent, it's about $12 billion a month to, to keep these households afloat. And so it's short-sighted to essentially, potentially create like a, a massive homeless problem um, because we are investing in big companies, but we're not taking care of the as you as you said, the most vulnerable folks. Well, and then there's just the health aspect besides, you know, people trying to support their neighbors and all of that. But if you have a lot of ho- more homeless people out on the streets, you're actually turning a lot of sidewalks into, you know, spreading events because people out on the streets, not health protected, get the virus, give the virus. This is something that helps keep this thing going. So, yes, it's a matter of trying to be nice and help people. It's also a matter of trying to help their neighbors and their communities as well, even if they have housing. Yeah, that's right. And also, you know, homelessness is an issue, but what's going to happen to a lot of these folks is they're going to end up moving in with friends or family, and that's exactly what we're not supposed to be doing, right? In order to be safe, you have to have a stable place with your in your home that would just your immediate family. So you're not in there uh, infecting more people. So if we're crowding people into fewer and fewer units, that seems to be something that we don't want to do right now as we're trying to get a handle on the pandemic. We'll see where this goes. Judd Legum is investigative reporter and lawyer behind the newsletter Popular Information, which has more about this and many other stories during this time of the pandemic. Judd, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. So as part of America Changed Forever, of course, we have a look at the thing that has changed us most, at least for now and possibly in some respects, as we've been covering over these many months forever, which is the COVID-19 virus. And for that, we're joined again by Lori Garrett, who is, of course, the much heralded reporter and scholar on public health 
who I first met when she was science reporter at Newsday a few decades ago, writing the book that has, rather than dated, seems, as Law & Order used to say, seems ripped from today's headlines, The Coming Plague. And another of her books that turned out to be ever so prescient, Betrayal of Trust, The Collapse of Global Public Health. Laurie, welcome back. How are you? Always a pleasure to be with you, Gil. Always good to have you. And, of course, we have spent months now talking about a vaccine getting us out of this. And this week, CDC Director Dr. Robert Redfield told a Senate panel he expects vaccinations to begin in November or December of this year in limited quantities, mostly going to people in need like healthcare workers. But six to nine months to get, as he said, the entire American public vaccinated. And he said we can get back to our regular lives, maybe third quarter, late second quarter of 2021. What do you think about that? Well, first of all, the idea that we will ever get back to our quote unquote regular lives, meaning some semblance of however it is we were living in, say, November of 2019, is preposterous. The world is absolutely irrevocably changed. And in every single dimension of social life, political life, economic life, and certainly medical life, um, things have been altered in ways that cannot go backwards. They will go to something new, some some new reality, some new normality. Now, the second part of that, of course, is do I believe that we will have fully vaccinated Americans or at least sufficient numbers to achieve something close to herd immunity so that the virus no longer haunts the United States of America and we will have done so by, say, this time next year? I think that's a pipe dream. There is a thing that we have to worry about, I guess, across the board, and even when we get past politics, which is the United States, which used to lead in technology, and especially health technology. You know, we invented vaccines. Uh, Jonas Salk, who invented the uh, one of the developers of the uh, polio vaccine, was a hero. We used to make Hollywood movies about, you know, Louis Pasteur, Dr. Ehrlich, and all of that. That is not the America that we're living in now. And even when we get past COVID, when and if we get past COVID, this suspicion of the very people who used to routinely save our lives is something it seems we're going to be dealing with for quite some time. Yes, I'm afraid that what is politely called vaccine hesitancy, meaning one is hesitant or reluctant or absolutely refuses to take vaccines for a variety of different reasons, um, that that trend had already been increasing before COVID came along and had reached dangerous levels that caused large, significant measles epidemics uh, in many countries around the world, particularly in Europe, and led to a sort of resurgence of whooping cough, mumps, a long list of diseases that we normally have under control thanks to child vaccination. And of course, the most extreme of all of it is the Taliban's embrace of uh, anti-vaccine in the context of polio vaccination on the alleged grounds that there's some sort of CIA conspiracy behind it all, resulting in actual assassinations of uh, vaccinators all over Pakistan and Afghanistan. So uh, we have already seen these trends that were very dangerous well before COVID came along. And now COVID is so shrouded in all sorts of conspiracy theories and partisan disputes inside the United States, that it's inevitable 
that it would amplify the anti-vaccine sentiments and lead to very dangerous outcomes. And we now have a situation where, according to the last poll I looked at, only about 39% of Americans say they would line up for the first round of vaccination if a COVID vaccine were certified by the FDA. And the remainder of the nation, meaning more than 60%, would either absolutely refuse to be vaccinated no matter what, no ifs, ands, or buts, or would wait to see if the first batch of folks dropped dead or got sick and hold off and watch and see what happened before they got vaccinated. We have another problem here. You mentioned the Taliban in places like Afghanistan and other parts of the world where people are against vaccinations now. Bringing it back to COVID, we've talked about this within the United States, but the United States is no longer working with the World Health Organization. Whatever mistakes the World Health Organization made or did not make at the beginning of this thing, if we can't get people vaccinated worldwide, this virus is just going to keep traveling around the world every time somebody gets on an airplane. Well, in general, your question is spot on. Um, I would just correct a couple things. There are there's more agencies internationally engaged in the effort to come up with and distribute a vaccine than just WHO. Gavi is actually the biggest uh, vaccine distributor in the world, and they are 100% mobilizing to be prepared to handle, should there be one, a COVID vaccine. And we do have this thing called COVAX, which is a consortium of 172 nations, notably not the United States, that have mutually committed to assisting each other in not only distributing vaccines, but in bringing prices down, avoiding patent issues that allow companies to hoard supplies and deny international production. Uh, the United States, of course, is the outlier among superpowers, along with uh, China and Russia. So we are uh, refusing to participate. Um, but the rest, most of the rest of the world is on board. And uh, there is already talk about certain United Nations agencies. Can they mobilize up to 8,000 flights uh, delivering supplies of vaccines and personnel to carry out immunization around the world? Um, the, real, the real problem is, will we have a vaccine that among the nearly 200 candidate vaccines out there, will one of them come forward that proves to be actually usable in circumstances that are, are uh, geographically or socially difficult. For example, if you're trying to vaccinate people in villages in the Himalayas, you don't want your vaccine crew to have to climb you know, a mountain half the size of Mount Everest twice, uh, hauling all vaccine supplies, and have to lug up that mountain refrigerator capable of holding the temperature of your vaccine at minus 70 degrees centigrade, which is the temperature one of the leading candidate vaccines requires, uh, and then return to give them a booster and do it all over again. This would not work. What we need is a vaccine that is a take on the first time, that has provides lasting immunity for uh, several years at, at least, uh, and that does not require maintenance of a cold chain, as it's called, meaning refrigeration all the way, um, and that it can be uh, applied without using needles. Uh, so uh, there, there are a couple of possibilities. One is a sort of nasal spray 
Another is uh, these interesting things that are sort of like band-aids and they have micro, like microscopic sized needles embedded in the band-aid that just gently poke in, you wouldn't even feel it, into the skin uh, vaccine over a period of a couple of hours. So you, all you do is slap band-aids on people. We are seeing so many different things uh, from this virus, some directly caused by the virus. Some things, when people think they're over the virus, we're seeing cases of inflammation, you know, problems that linger after we think the person is cured of the virus itself, you know, damage too soon to know how much of this is lasting and how much it is uh, things that people might be getting over. Well, I think one of the big breakthroughs that we're starting to recognize right now is that this virus is at least as much a cardiovascular disease as it is a respiratory one and may in fact be primarily a cardiovascular disease. Uh, we have new evidence that the virus actually infects a key set of cell types in the heart that are basically are the heart muscle cells. And in doing so actually makes those cells explode. Just boom, they're gone. And the older you are, the less likely you are to actually be able to regrow cells of this type or any sort of muscular cells in the body. Um, it may go a long way to explaining the age distribution in severe cases. Uh, I think COVID is perhaps going to turn out to have lasting effects, much like rheumatic fever, the sort of disease where damage done to the heart and to the general cardiovascular system, everything from blood clotting to, uh, you know, how uh, oxygen is carried through the body, that these things are all affected in deleterious ways that will have lasting impact, whether one gets infected at the age of five or the age of 95. Um, and I think this is going to make the disease look much more serious than the death count might make it seem. Pulitzer Prize-winning science reporter Lori Garrett. But once you get over COVID, just what are the lasting consequences? We'll have more on that coming up. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We've been talking to health reporter and scholar Lori Garrett. And Lori, we were talking about patients who live are considered cured, but they have lasting health consequences from COVID. I think COVID is perhaps going to turn out to have lasting effects, much like rheumatic fever, the sort of disease where damage done to the heart and to the general cardiovascular system, everything from blood clotting to uh, you know, how uh, oxygen is carried through the body, that these things are all affected in deleterious ways that will have lasting impact, whether one gets infected at the age of five or the age of 95. Um, and I think this is going to make the disease look much more serious than the death count might make it seem. Even with your warnings over the decades I've known you, we were unprepared for the coming plague, as you called it. The CDC this past week confessed it had failed utterly at being able to track the virus. I mean, this is a country where the smallest companies are collecting data on absolutely everyone on everything. This is pretty shocking that we were not able to collect data on that. 
There's several things going on here at once that conspire to make the United States a disgrace in the wealthy world in terms of our ability to accurately define our own epidemic. The first is that years and years and years, uh, decades really of budget cuts to public health at local levels, state levels, and national means that there's no coherent single database system in the United States. You can go to some health departments around the country and they're still using old-fashioned fax machines and computers so out of date that they can't even communicate with contemporary apps. Uh, and we have health departments that are have tried to develop very fancy schmancy uh, you know, data analysis systems and so on, but those fancy systems don't communicate with the next guy's fancy system. So all across the country, our first problem is that the, the sort of investment in information technology embedded within public health systems around the country has been ludicrous, almost non-existent. The second is that the Trump administration made a political decision uh, a few months ago to strip the CDC of, it, of authority to collect hospital data, which had been the pro one of the primary functions of the CDC for decades, and turned it over to an office inside HHS, Health and Human Services Department, which then put it out to two private companies, one of which was Palantir, a company owned and operated by Peter Thiel, who had been a major uh, funding donor to the Trump campaign in 2016 and continued to be a close associate of the president's. Palantir had historically primarily been in the business of doing artificial intelligence analysis of data for the CIA, the Defense Department, and ICE and the Immigration Service. Um, it was now adding for the first time health to its uh, long list of clients. Um, and indeed, in addition to the United States, it took over responsibility for processing COVID data in the United Kingdom for the entire national health system. Then it turned out that these companies, these two private companies, uh, did such a shoddy job and these beleaguered health departments with their poor technology were so unable to adapt to the new tech being demanded from these companies uh, that no data was really moving at all. And this was the situation we were in in July and August when finally the administration reversed its position and said, okay, back to CDC. So now the CDC is trying to catch up again, having been uh, told not to collect data. Meanwhile, we have a problem that we have no standardized form of testing. So you know, if you went out tomorrow, Gil, to get a COVID test, um, and I went out tomorrow to get a COVID test, first of all, there's no knowing whether you would get an antibody test, an antigen test, or a nucleic acid test, each of which measures completely different things and gives you information about completely different aspects of the disease. And secondly, the administration chose to strip the FDA of its responsibility to set standards and regulate testing. Uh, that's now been moved back to HHS, which has basically granted licenses to any testing company that asks for them. And as a result, the quality, the specificity, the sensitivity, the reliability of COVID testing in the United States is all over the map. 
Well, we can only hope that the next coming, whatever it is, finds us through this experience to be far better prepared. Uh, Laurie Garrett wrote what essentially was, well, should have been the textbook on this, The Coming Plague. Laurie, thank you so much for being with us. My pleasure. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. One way we know for sure America will change forever is when we start to tally the votes on Election Day, just a month and a half from now. The Supreme Court, health care, so many more issues are all issues of real consequences, depending on whether Donald Trump or Joseph Biden wins in November. Jamal Simmons is a CBS News contributor who, among other issues, analyzes Democratic Party strategies for the election. Jamal, welcome. How are you doing? I'm good. Let me start with the Democratic Party. Biden has held a lead for months now in the polls. It's been very steady, even in most swing states. But Democrats have that trauma of 2016. What is different this time or is it? Well, what's different this time is people know Donald Trump in a much more intimate way than I think they did um, a few years ago. Uh, You know, a few years ago in 2016, when Donald Trump ran, He was the bad boy billionaire, the disruptor. He was going to shake everything up and turn the system upside down. I don't think people quite understood what that would look like for them in their real lives and and the impact it would take. Has the Bernie Sanders contingent come fully to Biden or fully to being against Trump? Or are there Democrats out there that you speak to who are still saying, you know what, I just can't do this? You know, that's one of the two big uh, um, holes uh, in this in this election for Biden. Will he be able to animate some of the Bernie Sanders crowd to vote for him versus staying home? I think that's their that's the persuasion there. It's not about voting for Trump. It's whether or not they'll show up at all. So if uh, that's one part of it is can he get those voters to, to show up? The second part is, you know, because of the coronavirus, Democrats are very used to going door to door, knocking on people's houses and finding out where do you stand? Are you with my guy or my girl or not? And I think What's happening right now is you don't have that ability. I was just reading a story about Nevada today where, you know, one group was was planning on having 21,000 doors knocked on by this point. They've only gotten 6,000 because they had to shut it down six months ago because of the virus. So Democrats don't have the same uh, ground game that they're used to waging. So one, the Bernie Sanders contingent, are they going to be happy enough to vote for Biden? Two, there's a little bit of flying with one eye covered because you just don't know from a door knocking perspective where voters stand. And there's also race, which is always an interesting question. In 2016, when we parsed the numbers, it seems Democrats have taken African-Americans for granted, figuring that between the enthusiasm that had been there for Obama, the affection for Bill Clinton they thought had transferred to his wife and statements by then candidate Donald Trump, the African-American community would show up big time in the swing states they needed. So... Has that changed? You know, it's one of the most frustrating things as somebody who's advised Democrats for 20 years now, over 20 years. Um, it's one of the most frustrating things uh, in the election in 2016 was trying to have this conversation with some of the Clinton campaign folks that you really did need to pay attention to some of these particularly young voters. Because, again, the question was not whether or not they were going to vote for Trump. I think most of them didn't. The question was whether or not they would vote for him at all. So take a look at one state in particular, my home state of Michigan, which Donald Trump won by about 10,000 votes. The city of Detroit alone was down 50,000 votes. Wayne County, is the, which is the county where Detroit sits, was down 75,000 votes. 
Um, so if only one out of five of those folks who had voted for uh, Barack Obama had shown up for Hillary Clinton, uh, you might have seen a different outcome in the state of Michigan. I remember in 2008 when um, Barack Obama ran for president, one thing that helped him was that there was a writer strike that was happening on network television. So there was no original programming. I was on CNN at the time. There was no original programming. So people were following the debate and the contest between Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton very carefully. What happened in that time period is Obama became less mysterious, less scary. People got to know him because they were watching that campaign so closely. This year, we're having a, a different effect, which is because of the quarantine and the staying at home, voters are paying a lot more attention to uh, what's happening in the news than they probably have been over the last three years. Talking about younger voters, as you mentioned a bit ago, Jessica Bird, who worked for Stacey Abrams, just did a piece where she talked about young African-Americans not really caring about a party or candidates, but it doesn't mean they're not involved. They care about specific causes, health care, housing, law enforcement, on and on, because they believe one party doesn't care about them at all. The other just thinks of them as votes and then forgets about them altogether. Does that presage some change in our politics in the years ahead? You know, we've been seeing that trend for a long time. People just seem to be less inclined to identify with a big political brand you know, whether it's the Republicans or the Democrats. I mean, you think about the Tea Party on the right. I mean, they really, in many ways, weren't so much, or even a lot of the Trump voters, they weren't so much Republicans as they really were devoted to the cause they were in. I think we're seeing that on the left now, particularly with young people. It's not just people of color. It's young people across the board who don't want to identify themselves as Democrats, but they stand up for what are traditionally Democratic uh, policy platform positions. So um, the challenge for the Democrats is how to get those voters to take their independent self-identity and attach it to a Democrat in particular elections. And that's just a case that candidates have to go out and make to those voters uh, each time they stand for election. And you're seeing people are very interested in, in, in OK with investing in local elections because you feel it's more tangible. You can touch it. You know how the you know, you, you can maybe go talk to the, the, the new county prosecutor or the mayor or the city council person. It's a lot tougher to meet and touch a president, so it's harder to make that individual case. If both parties have racial problems, it seems to be lumping together all non-whites as a single thing called minorities. <laughs> Again, forgetting that many Florida Hispanics are from families that escaped communist Cuba, they're politically conservative, and that many Latino voters in other parts of the country, though upset possibly about Donald Trump and immigration, are still strongly Catholic, socially conservative on issues like abortion and gay rights. Uh, Native Americans are just that to both political parties. Differences between Navajos and Hopis in an important swing state like Arizona glossed over and not known at all. How much of a problem is this across both parties? You know, it's a challenge because... It, but it's a challenge because we've got to change the way we think of people of color in this country as being like a kind of a sectioned off minority. The truth is the generation, the millennial generation is about 43% people of color. The generation after them is closer to 50% people of color. So that means that candidates are going to have to spend a little bit more time and figure out what's specific, uh, you know, about the, you know, Cuban American vote or the Puerto Rican vote in Orlando matters uh, or the Native American vote in Arizona versus Oklahoma, how that plays out. The same way candidates had to figure out whether or not the Irish in Boston thought the same as the Italians in New York City, right? Or the, you know, the Protestants uh, thought the same as the Catholics. I mean, there's a there's a very different way of of uh, uh, politics that's going to have to occur in the United States of America. I mean, just take Latinos, for instance, in Florida. I mean, you're right. There is this contest between um, more conservative 
um, anti-socialist uh, uh, Latinos who come from places like Venezuela and, and Cuba. But on the other hand, you've got in Orlando about a million uh, people who who come to the United who come to the mainland United States from Puerto Rico who are working in Di in the Disney theme parks and places along in in uh, Orange and Osceola County. The vice president was there this week. Vice President Joe Biden was there this week. Those voters are traditional Democrats. They are much more progressive minded. They've, you know, again, they're American citizens. They've been American citizens for almost 100 years. So they've got a um, they've got a very different uh, sensibility about what they want from a politician. And politicians are just going to have to spend more time and adapt. And you know who did it really well to give them credit for it is Rick Scott, who was the former governor of Florida, who ran for the Senate in 2018 and won that race in the squeaker. Um, and, and displaced a Democratic senator. Rick Scott went to every uh, small uh, Latino community event and, and really parceled out how he did his politics to understand the individual uh, issues in each community. And that came to his benefit in that election in 2018. Jamal Simmons is a CBS News contributor and longtime Democratic Party activist who analyzes Democratic Party strategies for the election. Jamal, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. The battle against COVID, vaccines, or the lack of them, long-lasting health problems, the knowledge that we may have to do this all over again for this virus or another one, then the battle to keep from being evicted and where to go and what to do if you are evicted in that intersection of race and politics, a place that from day to day seems either uniting or divisive, often at the same time, even within the same city block. We have dealt with a lot of unsettling material this week. So let's end on a hopeful note. Amid all this upheaval in places where there are no press conferences, PR people, and somewhere beyond memes and TikToks, there are signs that America has not changed for now and maybe won't forever. It often hides itself, even if it's right in front of us, because there are people not calling attention to themselves, but instead to others. They do it quietly, but effectively. In fact, they do it so quietly, you have to go look for it. But that's what CBS News correspondent Steve Hartman does on the road. Any electrician can flip a switch. But only John Kinney of Woburn, Massachusetts can make a customer light up like this. Please don't pinch me because I don't want to wake up. Yeah. <laughs> that's one fine electrician. <laughs> oh, a thousand times over. Last month, 72-year-old Gloria Scott called John to fix a ceiling light. But he soon discovered that broken light was the least of her problems. Too poor to make any house repairs and too prideful to ask for help, Gloria's house was in total disrepair. No lights, no running water. Yeah, I think I seen on a Friday and it stuck with me over the weekend. I said, I got to go back there, you know. So John returned and started working for free. He also started a Facebook page titled, Nice Old Lady Needs Help, where he called on other tradespeople to join him. On the Facebook page, you said, it's not like we're trying to rebuild her whole house. <laughs> yeah, well, now it looks like we are. <laughs> it sure does. This whole porch is going to get rebuilt. You can see up there, that's where like a lot of the raccoons and stuff were getting in. They've been at it about a month now, putting in all new electrical, all new plumbing, 
new windows and walls and ceilings. Almost everything is getting repaired or replaced, from the backyard lawn to the front porch steps. Wow. It's what you're supposed to do. It's what you're supposed to do. Seems the whole town of Woburn has bought into that mantra. Come on. <laughs> Even those who can't build are now showing up with shovels and rakes, sending gift baskets, and plying the workers with food. Look at these people. I mean, I, I can't even comprehend the gratitude that I have. John is equally speechless. Yep. It's just, there's no words for it, you know. It's not going to end with this house, though, either, is it? I don't want it to, and that's why we put a name to it, the Glorious Gladiators, and we want to keep going with this. John would like to see chapters of Glorious Gladiators across the country, helping seniors in similar situations. Seniors like... Gloria Scott, who had a broken light, but now shines brightly thanks to an electrician, hardwired for kindness. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhall, I'm Gil Gross. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts.